0: It's good to see you. Welcome to St. James. Uh, Welcome to those who are watching on the live stream as well. Um, uh, You can read the announcements for yourself. I have a few things uh, I need to run over real quick here. One is that there's no youth confirmation class today after school. School. Sunday school. And uh, two, there's no new members class this evening. I apologize about that, but there's a funeral thing that came up um, uh, kind of late. And so... Uh, it's going to happen this evening, and so I can't be at the new members class. Uh, so we'll put that off till next week. I apologize because we had uh, just starting some good discussion last week about baptism, but we'll pick that up uh, next week. Um, what else? Oh, uh, make sure you sign the guest registers there at the end of the aisle and pass that down so other people can sign them as well. Uh, and then you can read the announcements there. i uh, got a, a Sunday school party coming up on June 4th. You can check that out. Uh, make sure that you're here for that. Um, I think that's all I got. Let's go ahead and stand, and we'll open uh, with the first hymn. Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. Since we're gathered to hear God's word, call upon him in prayer and praise And receive the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ in the fellowship of this altar. Let us first consider our unworthiness and confess before God and one another that we've sinned in thought, word, and deed. And that we cannot free ourselves from our sinful condition. Together as his people, let us take refuge in the infinite mercy of God, our Heavenly Father. Seeking his grace for the sake of Christ and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Almighty God, have mercy upon us. Forgive us our sins and lead us to everlasting life. Amen. Upon this, your confession, I announce the grace of God to all of you. And in the stead and by the command of my Savior, Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. From Psalm 68. God shall arise. His enemies shall be scattered. And those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to His name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in His holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness. The earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad, you restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it, in your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. Morning picks up right from the end of Ascension, and um, it uh, right after and, and transitions us to next week when we're uh, going to celebrate Pentecost, uh, and it's about the uh, the death of Judas Iscariot and the calling of Matthias as the new twelfth apostle. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew. Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons wasn't all about 120 and said, Brothers, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, Who became a guide to those who rested Jesus? For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, this man, Judas, bought a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his boughs gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language Acheldama, that is, Field of Blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, this is back to Peter talking. May his camp be desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who've accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justus, and Matthias, and they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Epistle reading again from First Peter 4 and 5. Peter says, Beloved, The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. John, chapter 17. Glory to you, O Lord. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them, and have come to know in truth that I come from you, and they've believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. hymns for for, for grappling with suffering. Um, I mean, all the words are good, uh, but that last verse in particular, you fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. This was written by William Cooper, who was a good friend of uh, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. William Cooper knew all about Mental health struggles. He survived at least one suicide attempt, and uh, he's a faithful Christian, but just could not shake really, really d- deep and dark depression. He, he writes this hymn not as some sort of lecture, uh, some some sort of psychologist from an ivory tower, but somebody who intimately knows what it means to grapple with uh, the darkness of the human night, and. I, 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 I wanted us to sing this hymn. I mean, it's a good hymn anyway, but I wanted us to sing it because we're wrapping up our look at First Peter and uh, what First Peter has to teach us about suffering. And um, Pastor Lang and I, as we've preached on the First Peter text, have uh, t- talked about um, having joy in the midst of suffering, how suffering can lead us closer to Christ. We've talked about how suffering can help us grow. We've talked about how suffering communicates grace to ourselves and to uh, each other. we talked about how suffering works in community. We've talked about how suffering works in evangelism. And these are all good things. But on this, this last um, reading that we have before Pentecost next week when, we t- when we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, uh, I wanted to talk about here at the end of Peter's epistle, he spends a few minutes talking about what suffering means for how we as Christians uh, grapple with what we would call mental health. Uh, Peter wouldn't use that language. It definitely is an issue. Mental health is um, something that we all uh, more or less struggle with, some of us less than others, but all of us struggle with this. Suffering seems to ramp this up, of course. Peter knows that. Peter is not, again, he's like William Cooper. He's not a theologian like sitting in an ivory tower telling us fact nuggets about God. Peter's a, he's an elder, he's a pastor, he's like dealing with people's lives. Peter himself knows what it's like to grapple with depression. And when he talks about suffering throughout 1 Peter, what he's not saying is suffering is good. Now go have fun, just enjoy yourself. He knows it's bad. He knows it's painful. He knows it's glorious as well because it connects us to the sufferings of Jesus. He knows that it's a way to experience God's grace as we suffer with each other in community. He knows that it's the number one way for a lost and dying world to see the crucified Jesus is to see his crucified Christians. He knows that. But he also wants to say there's gonna be collateral damage. You're going to hurt. Suffering hurts. How can we, what what kind of comfort will Peter give us from the gospel? That's what I want to look at this morning. Uh, There's a ton here in this reading. And there's basically four things I wanted to talk about. And that was uh, 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 isolation. I wanted to talk about despair. And I wanted to talk about shame and anxiety. But all you're going to get is uh, me talking about shame and anxiety because I didn't have time for the rest of it. And even that was not going to be enough to cover what Peter says in these few verses. But I wanted to talk this morning uh, 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 briefly about what Peter says about shame that we experience in suffering, and also anxiety, which is stirred up by suffering, and and what he has for us here, okay? So first of all, let's talk about shame. And I want you to look at verse 16 in the reading. Peter says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. Now, he's not just gonna say, don't be ashamed. He's also gonna tell you why we shouldn't be ashamed. But he does say, Peter does recognize that suffering, now this this point Peter's making here specifically has to do with the kind of suffering we do as Christians, the kind of suffering that we do because there's a certain amount of shame in, and there always has been, in being a follower, cultural shame, in being a follower of Jesus. And Peter says, I don't want you to experience that shame. Don't be ashamed of who you are as a Christian. Psychologist Simon Rodelli defines shame as a, quote, a self-critical emotion according to which individuals display a negative consideration of themselves. It's basically a negative view of yourselves. We don't feel, he goes on to say this, we don't feel ashamed because of the actions we've done but because of who we are. Shame isn't something that you experience because of what you do, although that might trigger it. Shame is something you experience because you sense that who you are doesn't have value. Who you are is shameful. Peter knows that shame strikes at our identity. He's called us to this identity in Christ. And he knows, and he's not talking about like shameful behavior, sinfulness, but he knows that like identifying with Jesus is going to cause us to be tempted to be ashamed of what others think about us. Not not necessarily just because of what we do. In fact, many Christians are ashamed. They would never ever talk about the gospel in public or live in a a uniquely Christ-like way in culture, but they're still ashamed of who they are as Christians. They haven't done anything, but it's their identity that they're ashamed of. And Peter is saying, "Let, let, let let, let this not be the case with you. Shame strikes at your identity. And just be, uh, so I've told this story here before. Uh, A long time ago, I was uh, in in church ministry and I was uh, uh, outside with a group of like elementary school age kids. It's a stupid story. And uh, we were playing football and one of them was like, "Hey, hey, Pastor Aaron, how far can you punt a football? Like how far can you kick a football? And they were like, yeah, yeah, we want to see how far you can kick it. And so I thought, okay, I'll uh, impress the youngins. And I, I, so I, I punted the football as hard as I could, and I completely wiped out. Not like stumble and fell, but like where your plant leg goes out, and you're basically parallel to the ground. And super embarrassed. I mean, I still rem- remember how I felt, because I was, like, going to impress them, and they were prepared to be impressed. And then they just thought it was hilarious. That I was laying writhing on the ground in pain. Um, it, wasn't, it, wasn't the sli- it wasn't the slipping while I was punting that actually brought shame. It was that they knew that I was a goober. That I wasn't like this great athlete, but that I was a goober. So it wasn't, we all slip and fall at times. My identity had actually been attacked. I was, I was experiencing shame because it was me, myself, that was on trial and found wanting and convicted of clumsiness, of not being athletic, of being a goober. We as Christians, we, we experience that same shame. It's, believing that Jesus is Lord of the universe in face of all the cultural evidence where it looks like the rich and the relevant are lords, that brings a certain amount of shame. It's, it's, it's almost like you're playing a game, like a fantasy game. To believe that there is, to believe that the Holy Spirit is powerful and works is a matter of shame in a society which is largely philosophically materialistic. Believing that all that is is matter. This causes shame. How can we grapple with this? How can we not be ashamed of being a Christian? Peter says don't be ashamed. How can we not be ashamed? I'm going to give you three things here. I'm sure there's more, but three things here. First of all, don't abandon your real identity. Let him glorify God in that name. What what that means is, is Christian, right? So yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, don't, don't be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. That's who you are. That's who you are. All of you know this language. It's just super cliche. You all know this language, you all know that the proper thing to do for those of you who are parents is to say, even if my kids do something that's like profoundly, like broken, they're still my kids. They still are, fill in the last name. There's something about being a member of your family that brings value and glory, a certain glory that, is, that, 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 that comes along with being who you are and who your group is. We, we all sense that. We we all know that about our kids that there's absolutely nothing they can do. I've talked I've talked to parents whose kids are in prison, and they will say there's nothing anybody I I know that what they did was wrong. But there's nothing anything anybody can say to me to move me off my pride my my pride of them and my love for them. i I know not all parents feel that way. But Peter's saying since that now what, what does that mean? Pride of what? Like pride of yourself? No, the parallel works here too. It's not that the kid in prison is proud of himself, but the kid in prison knows that my mom and dad are proud of me even though I've done this, all right? Wherever you're, if I'm talking to Christians now. Wherever you're, whatever, wherever you're at, whoever you are, whatever you've done, you have to be convinced that your father in heaven is deeply proud of you. I mean that genuinely. He's very, very proud of you. He looks at you and he takes intense pleasure and there's nothing that can move him off of that position. So don't be ashamed of being a Christian. You know who you belong to. You know what your last name is. Don't be ashamed of being a Christian. Second thing, locate yourselves within God's historical plan. Now, this is a little bit tricky to understand in verse 17. He says, Peter says, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? This is an argument from the lesser to the greater, right? If God is, if we are experiencing the judgment of shame, I'll I'll get to a second in here, like, what does it mean to be judged? If we're experiencing, how much worse those who don't know God? And then he says, this quote, "'If the righteous is scarcely saved.'" What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, what does he mean here? He, does he mean that, that, so God's judging you? No, he doesn't mean that. What he means is, is that it's time for the judgment. We are living, since, and it's been for the past 2,000 years, since Jesus rose from the dead, the time when God is prepared by the authority of his son, the righteous judge, King Jesus, to judge the world in righteousness, that time has come. And you and I are living in the, in the, We're living through the trial of the world around us. The world is on trial, the judge is God. And you and I are here, we're witnesses to that trial. And what we're doing is we're experiencing the final, I'm gonna switch metaphors now for a second. We're experiencing the final surgery that God is doing on this world to make all things new. You and I are a part of this as well. We're safe. God loves us. But we can't avoid the... uh, people do evil in the world, and it's sinful, and it ripples out, and you just can't avoid that because we too are humans, and we live in this space and time. To be aware that we're living in the final age when God is doing this final surgery or when God is doing this final last judgment should encourage us that our shame is secondary The shame that you're tempted to experience is not because before the face of... Listen this. It's not because before the face of God you are shameful, but because our entire world is shamed and that it's not lived up to the calling that God gave us in the Garden of Eden. Now, those of you who know Jesus, God has pulled you out of that and has rescued you and promised that he's restoring in you true womanhood, true manhood, so that you can begin to look like Adam and Eve were designed to be. But we're still living in a world, and there's still parts of us too, weirdly enough, that are trapped in this old shameful existence. However, our shame is secondary. The real shame is the shame of those who refuse to believe that because they tried to punt the ball and ended up on their back, that they've done anything wrong, and that everybody should think that that's cool that you ended up on your back. We experience them. So here's here's a quote from Nietzsche. Not that I approve of Nietzsche. Of course, you guys know that. Nietzsche says, in seeing the sufferer suffering, I I become ashamed on account of his shame. When I watch somebody suffering, I see their shame and I experience shame because they're experiencing shame. And one of the things I think Peter is telling us this is don't confuse the shame you experience as the primary shame. You're experiencing shame because you're watching and witnessing this final surgery. It's not really your shame. Don't let those who are truly shame project their shame onto you. Christians have this problem. I just pointed at you. That was very offensive, and I, and I apologize. Very, my my uh, sister Julie, when she sees me preach, she's like, that's very German. Stop pointing at people. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not German, so I won't. Sorry, but I, I did like that. I apologize. Uh, uh, Christians frequently think, Everybody out there is so, everybody out there who is opposed to God is so happy and secure and proud of who they are. It's not the case. The people who, people who experience, the people who experience the shame most are the people who, just this reminds me of something that happened to a friend of mine, who gets up from punting a football, laying on their back, and tries to act like they're still cool. Like, yeah, I meant to do that, right? The, the, the people who project, uh, pride and arrogance and security are the ones who are are most shameful and want to cover that up. You just need to be aware of that, that your shame is secondary, their shame is primary, and to know that because we're living in the judgment of this world, that you don't have to experience that shame. It's just projected. It's not real. You have no shame. You have no shame. And and it, it does not mean, though, that you shouldn't understand that shame and be motivated by that shame to love other people, to love other people, okay? That, see, that's the one thing is that our secondary derivative shame, it, it prevents us from like wanting to love and, and, and to minister to those who are experiencing real shame. We back away from them. Larry Crabb says this, he says, when the core of our being is threatened, in the context he's talking about the, the shame, remember the core of my being was threatened when I ended up on my back when punting the ball. When the core of our being is threatened, the panic we feel strengthens our commitment to self-protection. I'm gonna say this one more time. When the core of our being is threatened and Christians frequently feel like the core of their being is threatened, it's called, that's what I'm talking about when I say shame. The panic we feel strengthens our commitment to self-protection. The result is this. Responsible action is not the concern. Self-preservation is. The Christian church is in self-preservation mode right now, paralyzed, unwilling, not, not the whole Christian church, but the temptation is, not willing to help those who actually need help because they're dealing with primary shame because we're so locked in and trapped into our secondary shame that we can't actually do anything but just try to preserve ourselves and protect ourselves. The motivation to act becomes entirely self-serving, Crabb says. The path to destructive emotions has been entered. You need to be aware of this. But Peter's not just saying, don't be ashamed because I don't want you guys to feel bad. He's saying, don't be ashamed because I told you this is a sermon last week. I told you that your suffering is the way that others meet Jesus. And as long as you're ashamed, you're locked inside the prison of your own self-preservation habits, and they're not going to see that. It's about loving our neighbor. It's about loving this world that God created. It's about loving the world that Jesus died for and being empowered by our confidence that the gospel's real and our shame is secondary to go out and love and serve them. Third thing he gives us here, then we'll move on. Trust in God's faithfulness. Verse 19. Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The cure for shame is love and acceptance. It always is. One of the reasons I know that Angela loves me is because she has seen me do all sorts of like foolish things, stupid things. She's heard all of my lame jokes. She's heard all of my repetitive stories. She's seen me do things that are like very, very embarrassing, and yet she continues to love and accept me. That's why with Angela, I don't feel shame because I know that anything that I do, she's going to love and accept me. What Peter is saying, trust yourself to God in that way. It doesn't say trust God intellectually. It says trust yourself to God. Know that no matter what you do, God loves you and accepts you. There's no way you can lose that. He's kind of circling back to that first point about don't abandon your identity, Find your love and your acceptance in Jesus. You cannot lose that. There's nothing to be ashamed of before his face. All right, moving on to anxiety. He says this, uh, Peter says this in, in verse seven, very famous verse, right? A lot of you have this memorized, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter knows that sufferings can cause intense anxiety, not just Christian suffering like we've been talking about, but let's move over to just basic human suffering the suffering that comes from being a human living in a broken world with a broken body and broken relationships and broken finances, that causes anxiety. That makes us worry and stress, all of us, some more than others. I stress a lot. I, I briefly tried to make up a, a list to give you illustrations of things that I have woken up in the middle of the night to worry about, and the list is so extensive and, 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 and so thorough in every area of my life, that it's actually kind of pointless to do this. I've worried about the kids' grades. I've worried about finances. I've worried about if I left the car windows down. I worry about something that I said to one of you, which after replaying in my mind 30 times because I'm a people pleaser and that's what I do, I realize that it's possible that it could have offended you and that you were just being polite, and now you've walked away and you've told all your friends and your community group and your extended family, that I'm a jerk. These are the kind of things that wake me up in the middle of the night to worry about. This, I worry about my health. I'm, I'm a, a, a low-level hypochondriac. Pray for me. I, if, I have like, if I have a minor pain in my lower back, I'm convinced it's colon cancer. This is one of the things. I, and I'm not, it's, it may be funny because you know that I'm ridiculous, but it's actually something I think. These are the kind of things I worry about. I worry about your guys' health. I worry about you. I worry about conversations I've had with those of you who are really struggling with stuff. I worry about sermons. I worry if I, if I missed a point that I wanted to make, I'll kick myself 13 times over the next few days. I worry about if you think that I'm interesting. I worry about if you like me. I worry about everything. Everything I worry about. That's a, that's a, that's a sort of suffering. Here at the end, Peter says, don't be anxious. Again, this is like the, uh, this is, you can say don't be ashamed, but that's not enough. He's going to say don't be anxious, but he's actually going to help us not be anxious as well. Anxiety, of course, is about a lack of control. I can't make you like me. I can't make my health be good. I can't make my finances be okay. I can't make our church be healthy and loving. I can't, I, I, I can't control any of this. And I'm anxious because I can't make it happen or I can't know that something is going to happen. I need to know that something is going to happen. We call this in the trade omnipotence and omniscience. And they're uniquely characters of the creator God and of no one else. And yet I crave them. I crave them like I crave candy. I want to be able to do whatever I want to do that I think is right. Good stuff, you know, that's what I'm talking about now. And I wanna know that everything's gonna be okay. I wanna know that my kids are gonna be okay. I wanna know that when they go off to college everything's gonna be fine. I wanna know that they're gonna be Christians. I wanna know that they're gonna be sick. I'm not omniscient. To demand that sort of thing is to quest after God in a way that got Adam and Eve in trouble in the garden and frankly has become my MO. It causes anxiety, intense anxiety. Now. What's Peter's solution? What I'm going to do is I'm going to frame this in terms of, there's a Christian counselor named Jason Cusick who talks about um, uh, dealing with anxiety. He's actually written kind of a helpful book about anxiety. And he he outlines four principles for dealing with anxiety. And I'm going to give you those four principles. I'm going to define them. And then we're going to look at the text here in 1 Peter 4 and 5 and talk about how Peter uses these four principles. He's not, he hasn't read Jason Cusick's book, I'm sure, but he's using these four principles to help us deal with anxiety too. The four principles are this. Normalization, learning to expect anxiety-inducing circumstances. Suffering is a part of normal life. Exposure, acknowledging and understanding the true cause of our anxieties. Habituation, becoming desensitized to our anxieties by not running away from them, but grappling with them. And then finally, care, experiencing and being embraced by a type of love which can take away anxiety, an act of love which can take away anxiety, okay? So uh, if you're writing those down, I'll, I'll, I'll repeat them again as I go through each point one by one. So, first of all, normalization, learning to expect anxiety inducing circumstances. Look back at the very first uh, verse in our reading, if you would. But Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Suffering is going to happen. I, I, don't, everybody, I, I, don't know, I don't know how to say this in a way that makes it real to us because you all know it. And when I say it, we're all like, yeah, suffering happens. It's what happens. But then suffering happens and I find myself saying to somebody, where's God at? Like, I don't know. I don't even know, like, is he even paying attention? Does he even care about this? Or even worse, I can't even believe in a God that would let suffering happen like this. So Peter's saying suffering is going to happen. Don't be surprised. Why are we so surprised when it happens? It it has to be something to do with us being Americans. And conditioned to believe that comfort and ease and security are our God-given rights. It's just not the case. They're wonderful gifts but they have not been promised to us. What has been promised to us here is suffering. It's going to happen, you can't avoid it. Be prepared for it when it happens. The question when it happens is whether we trust God or not. The question when it happens is, am I gonna filter these sufferings through a paradigm of randomness? Why is this happening? Whoa, things are out of control. Or am I gonna filter them through a paradigm of God's loving sovereignty and know that he's in charge and he's got a reason for this? My anxiety will be significantly increased if I believe that my suffering is out of control because anxiety is caused by my sense of my own lack of control. If I know that I'm not in control, but I believe that somebody actually is in control, I can say, okay, I don't like this suffering. It's bitter, but somebody who loves me is in charge of this, and I can let them have that, all right? Normalize suffering. Normalize suffering. Normalize suffering normalize suffering in other people's lives. Christians frequently, this will happen, Christians will suffer and other Christians will turn away from them in the church, in our church. Not because, not because they're like, oh, that, what's wrong with that person? but Because I don't know what to say. You know, something, something deeply has gone wrong with the matrix. I don't know what to talk to somebody who's suffering. Well, if we would normalize suffering, when people suffer, we could act normal when they suffer. We could be there in their presence. We could love them. So normalize suffering. I, and I, This is um, it's commercial for all of you. I know that some of you, this happens in churches. It happens in our churches. It's happened in every church I've been in. Somebody, something bad will happen and they'll say, Pastor, can you pray for me? Please don't tell anybody else. I don't want anybody else to know. But I need you to pray for me. And I'm super happy to pray with anybody who says that. But I would encourage you to let other people know because it helps them normalize suffering too. Can't, we can't normalize suffering if we don't suffer in each other's presence. We can't be blessed by the gift of suffering in community if we don't also normalize our own suffering in the presence of other people. Don't be afraid of this. This is one way to, to, to minimize the anxiety. Going home and sitting on it and saying, I'm just going to gut this out, or I'm going to try to do something. That's, not, that's the way to ramp up your anxiety. So first of all, normalization. Second of all, exposure acknowledging and understanding the true cause of our anxieties. Again, I'm just going to, let's let's read verse 8, and then I'll make a a, a related but extended point. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Let, let, Let me point out that the context of him telling us that Satan is looking to destroy you is with the verse, don't be anxious about anything. All right, so exposure means this. If exposure means, according to Jason Cusick, ex- acknowledging and understanding the true cause of our anxieties, acknowledging and understanding that a big part of what's wrong with our lives is there is there is a powerful supernatural evil being who's trying to destroy humanity. And, and this is very, very. You know, we, we don't like to talk about stuff like that. It, it feels very superstitious of me. Talking about, like, that from, you know, to, even from a pulpit, you know, like, um, talking about Satan and he's real and everything. And then we'll go watch, a, you know, a movie where there's dark, evil, supernatural forces and we'll be like, oh, this makes sense in the story. so you know what makes sense in the story? Is that we're, we're under attack. Is that Satan is attacking us. And to be aware of that, and this is going to relate to the third point as well, but to be aware that you're under attack, that A normal life of ease and peace is not our reality. I'm talking about Christians and non-Christians. That Satan hates God's image bearers because they look like him. And he's determined to destroy each one of them. This includes me and you. Be aware of that. It's one thing you can tell yourself when stuff is going south is that I'm under attack. This makes sense. This makes sense I'm under attack. And this is not the only thing we're gonna talk about how God defends us too, but Um, that's exposure, habituation, this is the third one, becoming desensitized to our anxieties by not running away from them, this is what Cusick says, and it matches up perfectly with what Peter says in verse 9, resist him, resist the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole world, resist, not ignore, resisting, not ignoring, look, saying, I can't believe in a God who would allow suffering, doesn't get us out of suffering, but magnifies it. I've already made this point. I won't spend too much more time on it. Resist it. Resist evil. Resist suffering. God's given us a tool to battle against our own anxiety, which is not to become a victim of it, although many of us are victimized by anxiety, but to become a fighter against it, to know that we live in a broken world, but to also know that we live in a world with a God who loves us, and to participate in the battle against him. Participate, look, do not ever say, well, I experience anxiety because I'm kind of a control freak, so that's who I am. Fight against you being a control freak. Every day, wake up in the reality of your baptism and say, Jesus, help me die one more time to the desire to be God and let you be God. Fight against the enemy. This is one major way for us to, to, to battle against anxieties. And then finally, Uh, Cusick says care is important to to, to experience and be embraced by an outside love. Verse seven says this, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter says, don't be anxious, cast your anxieties on Jesus and the main reason he gives us is because Jesus cares for you. Jesus cares for you. Jesus loves you, A. B, he's got the power to take care of your needs. This is with the whole point of this big doxology there at the end of the reading there after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. God's strong enough. He's motivated enough to help. I don't, this is is a side point. Let me just mention this briefly. Christian community also is a big deal. This was gonna be a part of the point about isolation, which I abandoned, but the end of verse nine is, know that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. God can fix this. So I was thinking this week about a story I had in my mind, kind of it's almost a cliche story. I've seen it in several movies, read it in several novels, where a character who's ill-equipped to deal with a problem is forced to deal with that problem. So it's kind of like a, 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 like an original version of the story in my, in my memory is the story of the boy in the Netherlands who sees that the levee, which is keeping out the sea, is crumbling. A lot of you have heard this story. And he goes, knowing that if it starts, that if water starts to come through, it's just going to eat away and eat away. And finally, if nobody stops it, their city will be flooded. So he goes over and he puts his hand in the hole to keep the water out and just stands there and waits. Now, of course, he's not equipped to repair a broken levee. But he's fighting against this onslaught of the ocean by himself. And many of you feel like that quite frequently, that you're standing there with your fist inside of that levee trying to hold back all the forces of evil in the entire world, in your family, in your body, in your mind, in your finances. And what you're waiting for is for some construction workers to come along and get the word that we need help here and to rush to the levee and repair it so that you can pull your hand out and watch them do it. And that's essentially what Peter's saying here is that you know, your anxiety happens when you do everything on your own, when you think that self-care is the way to fix your problem but you're just you've just got your hand in the levee and you can't do anything but stand there but the good news is that Jesus can fix this he loves you and he cares for you he has the expertise to fix the things that give us anxiety so to learn to live in his care to know that he paid an awfully high price for you there's no way he's going to lose that investment he paid the blood of his own son do you think that he's going to abandon you in your anxieties in your despair, in your shame. He refuses to do that. Live in that gospel reality to know that the crucified and risen Jesus loves you, gave himself for you, and nothing can ever separate you from that love. Let's pray. God, thank you for being a good God and for loving us. We're all struggling here, Father. Would you please take away, by the power of your Holy Spirit, in the name of your son, Jesus, please take away our shame. Please take away our anxiety in you, and we will give you the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank mm-hmm. you. stand for prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for meeting us with this mor- here this morning. You know that we don't have ability to get to you, but you do have the ability and the desire to get to us. We thank you for reaching out to us in love, for sending your son Jesus to connect us to you. And with the Holy Spirit uniting us to yourself so now that we can know you and to be in relationship with you, this is purely a gift of you. A gift from you and we give you the praise and glory for it lord in your mercy Amen. Father, the way i pray this morning for everybody who is struggling and with the fallout from that father with the mental health issues that all of us struggle with some of us very intensely and severely father i pray that your gospel would meet us that you by your power would begin to heal us that you would um Also use community, Lord, and and, and doctors and and therapy, too, as a part of this. Help us to find at the center of all these gifts that you've given us, Lord, the the love that you have for us in your gospel. May that be the infinite, um, bottomless source of our hope and joy, of, of our grappling with the struggles that we have in this fallen world and in our fallen selves. Lord, in your mercy, Father, I pray that you'd be with our ministries here at St. James, and I pray especially that you'd bless and keep our Sunday school teachers, those who minister to us with your word, and uh, from the little kids uh, on up, that that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on these teachers, and that you would give them the words to say, give them the love and patience that it takes to, to do ministry, and that uh, you would continue to bless our church with good leaders of your word, and be with the Bible studies and the community groups that we have as well. I also pray that you'd be with, uh, from our missions that we support, that you'd be with Mosaic and that you would be with them as they minister to uh, pregnant families and that um, you would use them to preserve and protect the life of the unborn and preserve and protect the lives of uh, women and that your name would be glorified and that we as a culture would become, would come more and more deeply to value life wherever it is that you've made human life, that we would become to love it and value it in your name. Lord, in your mercy. Be with us now as we come to your table. Father, we want to meet with you. This is not an act that we're doing, but it's a gift from you. You have chosen to come and meet with us. You've included us in this great drama of tradition, uh, this great drama of redemption, stretching back, Father, to the first Passover and to all the Passovers and the Last Supper, the early churches she gathered around your word and around your meal. Father, be with us as we join together with them and give us mainly, Father, give us yourself, Lord, in your mercy. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us to rescue us from our sins, to give us new life and to place us in your kingdom forever. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, O Lord, Holy Father, almighty and everlasting God, for the countless blessings you so freely bestow on us and all creation. Above all, we give thanks for your boundless love shown to us when you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into our flesh and laid on him our sin, giving him into death that we might not die eternally because he's now risen from the dead and lives and reigns to all eternity, all who believe in him will overcome sin and death and will rise again to new life. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and singing. Now let's pray in Jesus' name the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated. Please stand. Now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord bless you and keep you. Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Paul says in Galatians 6, bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The only way Jesus gave us community to grapple with these sorts of brokenness anxieties and shames and despair. So right now build that community. And I'm not saying you need to talk about what you're anxious about right now, but be building the kind of relationship that creates the space where that's possible when it's time to have that conversation. Go in peace.